Welcome to this episode of Litigation Briefs, Media Shorts on Law and Courts. I'm Scott Dodson, a distinguished professor of law at UC Hastings College of the Law and the director of the Center for Litigation and Courts, which produces this series. The law is full of Latin phrases. One of those phrases is habeas corpus. This phrase even appears in our constitution, but few people outside of the law knows what the phrase means and why it would be important enough to include in the constitution. So what is habeas corpus? Here to help me with that question is my guest, Amanda Tyler, the Shannon C. Turner Professor of Law at Berkeley Law School. Amanda, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Scott. Let's start with the definition. What does habeas corpus mean literally and in practice? Well, what it means is, if you really break it down, to have and receive the body. Well, that doesn't help us too much. The idea is a concept that goes back, as we'll discuss, to English origins. And the idea is simply that if you have someone who is in custody, then uh, if you allow a court to take custody, to have and receive that body, to take control over the um, legal status of that body, if you will, then through the writ of habeas corpus, which was at its origins a judicial writ, that is to say the judiciary invented it to take custody or what we might say in the law jurisdiction over a body, they then can decide the legal status of that body or that person. And where this comes up most and has historically is in deciding whether a government official can keep control, can keep custody of a body. So uh, the classic example that I wrote about in a book, uh, Habeas Corpus in Wartime, is the jailer of the Tower of London holding an enemy of the king in his custody there. And a court, the Court of King's Bench, for example, looks at the case, takes formal custody of the body and jurisdiction over the case, and says, do you have a lawful right to hold that prisoner? And if not, then the court uh, claims the power to release the prisoner. And this is why the storied or celebrated writ of habeas corpus has been so important historically, because it has been an avenue for persons wrongly convicted to uh, win their freedom through the courts. Let's uh, talk a little bit about why the judicial power is so important to issue the writ of habeas corpus. Why is that? Well, usually the person, again, we're talking about the conventional case and, and certainly for modern purposes, the most important use of habeas corpus. And that is in a situation where a government official has imprisoned and, and taken control over the body of someone. And so that official typically is gonna be the executive. The legislature often in cases of criminal activity, for example, has given the executive the right to do that. And so the only forum left for an individual to plea their case, if you will, is the courts. It's interesting that if you go back and you look at the historical origins of habeas corpus, as I and others have done in our scholarship, you find in early noteworthy cases, the court of King's bench, the justices of whom were appointed by the king, very reluctant to question the king's authority and in one very famous case, they say to the uh, individuals who are jailed, 
Well, we're sure if you go back to the king and you say all the things you've said to us as judges about how you're being held illegally, he, of course, will set you free. But of course, that's the same individual who ordered them detained. Uh, and so what we see over the evolution of the writ and why it becomes storied and celebrated in the pages of Blackstone as a second Magna Carta is because over time, the courts on their own initiative and with prodding by parliament in the English tradition and British tradition, take on the uh, mantle of questioning the king and saying, no, actually, you don't have the authority here, lawful authority to hold this individual, and we are going to set them free. And, and so that through that development, you see the courts really take on a very important role historically that is carried through to modern times in habeas cases. So the courts act as a, a check on executive overreach. Yes, and, and a very, very important one historically. You know, one of the things that scholars wrestle with is how much of that is translated to modern day developments and, and practices. And I have argued in my work that we've lost sight of just how robust a check it was historically on executive power and that we might revisit uh, whether it can be that again. You've mentioned some of the long history. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. How long has habeas corpus been around and how has it evolved? Well, it depends who you ask, uh, but the, the short answer, no matter who you ask, is several hundred years. The question is just how far back. There are many prominent uh, historical jurists who have linked habeas corpus as far back as Magna Carta. So you have Sir Edward Cook saying that it's connected to the concept of due process, and it surely is. Uh, but habeas corpus really comes into its own in the 17th century. That's where we see the English courts take on an, a, a much bigger role in second guessing and checking executive authority and executive detention powers. And a big part of that story is with the passage of the English Habeas Corpus Act of 1679, because there you see parliament actually call the courts into service in doing just this. And it's something that historically, if you study English history, you know, this falls during a period when parliament is, is increasing its role. It's taking on more and more power and that power it's taking is coming from the executive. And so part of that larger story is a parliament empowering the courts to second guess royal fiat when it comes to detention. And we see that then translate through into the American constitution as it's written. As you mentioned, the constitution includes the phrase habeas corpus in what we call the suspension clause. And, and in that clause, uh, the Constitution says that the writ of habeas corpus, the privilege of the writ of habeas corpus, shall not be suspended except where, uh, when in cases of rebellion or invasion, the public safety may require it. Now, there's a lot to unpack there. Maybe we'll talk about that. But the key point for, for present purposes is that this is a writ that developed in English legal history and that at the founding was enormously important to those who drafted the constitution, so much so that they constitutionalized the idea that habeas should be inviolate, except for in these very limited circumstances. So uh, it, it has these great longstanding origins and was very uh, much enmeshed in early American law 
and then constitutionalized. So that's in the federal constitution. How does the writ work when a state government has the body? Right. So what is another interesting story about habeas is that at the American founding, all the action in habeas corpus law and jurisprudence was in the state courts and was at the state level. Um, We have to remember that at the founding, the states were very, very powerful and they had going court systems as we transitioned toward independence. So, uh, So much of this law from that period was at the state level. And so it's no surprise then and now to see analogous habeas provisions in state constitutions. And what that means is that you have in many state constitutions and and in all state practices, I should say today, a protection of the writ of habeas corpus and and the ability to go to court and argue that you're being held unlawfully. And you also see in many state constitutions analogous limitations on the ability to suspend habeas like that we see in the federal constitution. So uh, there is a robust protection that carries across both the state and federal uh, legal frameworks. Now, can you use the federal writ of habeas corpus if you are a state prisoner? Yes, and this is a, a, a special use of habeas corpus. It goes back to the reconstruction period And it's interesting because from its origins, it comes out of a body of case law that really was uh, developed at the state level to frustrate slavery uh, during uh, the period leading up to and during the Civil War. And you see the Reconstruction Congress see, uh, look at this and see new possible uses for habeas corpus. And that Reconstruction Congress authorizes federal courts to start reviewing the legality of the detention of state prisoners. In this day and age, this is a very prominent and important role for habeas corpus. And in the day-to-day machinery of the federal courts, it is the prominent role that habeas corpus plays. And specifically, that means that if someone is convicted of a crime in state court, they can have their appellate process in state court. They might have a secondary appellate process, collateral review, we often call it, in state court, and then they can keep coming into federal court and they can argue going back to the statutory grant that's, that came into effect in, during reconstruction, they can argue that they're being held by a state government unlawfully and they can make that argument to a federal court. Now, uh, there's a lot that we can talk about with this and, and I know we, we only have so much time, but what I will say um, to, to someone who's new to this topic is that there was a period in the mid 20th century when federal courts engaged well until the late 20th century, during which federal courts engaged in rather robust review of state criminal convictions through habeas corpus proceedings. In 1996, Congress passed a statute called the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act. That's a a mouthful. We often refer to it as EDPA. In EDPA, Congress really reined that in. And so today, while we still see a huge portion of the federal court docket being comprised of habeas cases that involve reviewing state court criminal convictions, the success rate of those petitions is very, very low. And that kind of review 
by a federal court is only for questions of federal law, right? It's not reviewing every error that might have occurred in the state criminal process. Exactly. And it's it's federal constitutional error. So that is where the focus is. And then on top of that, you have a number of limitations that have been put into effect by Congress in EDPA that limit the ability to have hearings, for example, that call in many cases for deference to state court legal conclusions. Uh, that's a particularly controversial provision of the statute, but a provision I should say that has been upheld by the Supreme Court. Um, so that is part of the reason why the success rates today are so, so low. So it's not called the Great Writ for no reason. What are some of the key examples of how habeas corpus has played out, some of the big cases? Well, I mean, there are a lot of examples I could draw upon historically. I think one of the most um, successful uses of it was to free uh, runway slaves, or other examples. Uh, there's a case I talk about in, in a book I wrote called Habeas Corpus, a very short introduction of a free black who was taken into custody in Washington, DC during the period that slavery was allowed in, in this country and uh, was taken into custody as a suspected runaway slave. And he goes into court and says to the judge, but I'm a, I'm a free man and the judge frees him. So we see during that period also a lot of courts really trying to frustrate the fugitive, fugitive slave laws that were intended and passed um, as part of compromises to try and stave off the Civil War were intended to make it easier to take runaway slaves back into custody. And we see, particularly in the North, a lot of state judges acting to frustrate that. And so it's, it's really interesting to me that that is part of the inspiration for the legal framework that we see during Reconstruction that creates this ability for federal courts to uh, second guess state criminal convictions. And that really comes into effect in the mid 20th century when we're having a new reckoning with the role of race um, and, and there's suspicion about how race is playing out in the state courts and in the criminal justice system. Now, the Great Writ has also been uh, hugely important during various periods of war. Uh, I've written about, for example, the American Revolution, where we see Parliament has a number of prominent, England, I should say, and Britain has a number of prominent American prisoners being brought to England, where according to the Crown, they're believed to be, um, you know, of course the official position is they're British subjects. And so they can claim on English soil a right to the protections of the English Habeas Corpus Act, and that can win their release if they are not charged with a crime and timely tried. That's what that act promised. And so what does Parliament do? It suspends habeas during the American Revolutionary War so as to legalize the detention of Americans there. Um, but it does so because a number of Americans start to bring their cases to British courts, and they're going to win their release if there isn't a suspension. So we see there the prodding of the, of the writ to uh, parliament. Now the result is a suspension, so no one gets their freedom. So there, the end result isn't necessarily a story of great liberty. 
but we, we see it in modern times too. There were several prominent uh, habeas cases that went to the Supreme Court during the war on terror. We can parse those out in detail if we have uh, more time, but uh, there was a mixed reaction to them. I've written extensively about these cases. The press played them out as huge victories for individual liberty. I'm thinking in particular of the Hamdi case and the Boumediene case. These are cases in which the Supreme Court did rebuke very broad positions taken by the Bush administration related to its power to detain individuals, in some cases citizens, in some cases non-citizens at Guantanamo Bay. And it is true that the Supreme Court did reject the broadest positions advocated by the Bush administration, but many people think the court should have gone further. I've certainly said as much with respect to the Hamdi case. Um, The reality though on the ground is that we did see a shift in policy and behavior in some respects by the government as a result of those decisions. So in a general sense, we can say they, they certainly underscore the continuing importance of the writ of habeas corpus. And uh, those of us in the academy are, are left to debate uh, the, the, the fine, finer points of, of just what that should mean and, and, and whether the court got it right or got it wrong. Well, Amanda, thanks so much for being with us today and explaining what habeas corpus is. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. This episode was produced by the Center for Litigation and Courts at UC Hastings College of the Law. If you enjoyed this episode of Litigation Briefs, I hope you'll tune in to future episodes. In fact, I hope you'll consider subscribing to our YouTube channel and audio podcast, which can be accessed through the Center for Litigation and Courts website at sites.uchastings.edu CLC. While you're at it, encourage a friend to do the same. This is Litigation Briefs, respectfully submitted, Scott Dodson.